Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to Mapping the College Audition, a podcast where we explore the landscape of the college theater world and try to demystify this daunting audition process. I am, as ever, your host, Charlie Murphy, director of MTCA, that's Musical Theater College Auditions, and today we have got a shining armor of a show lined up for you. Cameron Knight from Rutgers University is on the pod, and Megan, our producer, was genuinely upset that I didn't make a pun about his last name in the interview, given that Rutgers' mascot is the Scarlet Knights. So there you go, Megan. I've done it. I've made a pun. I've known Megan for years, but somehow her level of college sports fandom or awareness always catches me off guard. She is a woman of many mysteries. Um, but the interview is great, and I was delighted to have Cameron on, so I hope that you enjoy that. Uh, and before we get to it, just another shout out to our amazing class of 2023. I gave them a lot of props on the last episode with Sean Allen Krill, but I know for some of our high school age and parent listeners, some don't listen to all of the artist ones. So just a reminder to check out our class of 2023 on the website, where we post stats of acceptances, final decisions, all kinds of cool stuff. You can check that out at mtcollegeauditions.com or in the show notes of this episode. But the TLDR is that they were amazing, got into some incredible schools, and many of them had the agonizing decision at the end that we hope for all of you to have as well of having too many good options. For our junior listeners, please, please keep up your hard work. For many, these next two months will be huge in your development, especially if you know you can have a busy summer and you're hoping to film your pre-screens in the early fall. If you're planning on our summer faculty masterclasses and a mock audition, you're off to the right start. But now, these next few months, is when that foundation of work can really be laid so that you can be prepped and ready to play come your audition season. As for me, I have been on solo daddy duty these past two weeks, and I will say I am barely making it through. This is with a supporting and loving partner who just happens to be away. Elizabeth's performing with the Boston Pops this weekend. And I just cannot imagine doing this alone permanently. So like a giant shout out to those single parents out there, really to all parents who are supporting a growing human being, be they toddler or be they teenager. Um, Hopefully your teens aren't pooping in the bathtub like mine did an hour ago. But hopefully they do all still give you joyful hugs when they successfully poop in the toilet 20 minutes later, which almost makes the cleanup worth it. And that's a big almost. And with that, let's get to this interview with Cameron Knight from Rutgers University. Well, we are so excited to have Cameron Knight of Rutgers University on the pod today. Uh, Cameron has an MFA in classical acting from the University of Delaware and a BFA in acting from University of Michigan Flint. As an actor, he's been all over the place at the Kennedy Center, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Milwaukee Rep. He's been on TV in the Orville and Chicago Med, uh, on film in Widows, uh, and all over the academic world. Uh, we were talking about he just missed me at Carnegie Mellon University when he was teaching there. He um, taught at DePaul, UNCSA, and is now the head of acting at Rutgers University, which is located in New Brunswick, New Jersey. They offer classes of about 16 to 20. They have a BFA in theater. Cameron, welcome on the pod. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Well, so I read a little bit of a, a super condensed bio of what we found online, but is there anything in terms of your journey um, specifically to Rutgers, but also to your journey from, you know, the world of acting, the world of professorship that uh, you'd want us to know as we kind of get to know you today? Uh, sure. I think one of the things that um, I hold very, very uh, well, sacredly is probably too precious to put it, but um, uh, it's one of the things that I, I insist upon or work hard towards with the faculty that we have as well, is that we're all still working artists, you know. Um, I'm, I'm certainly a 
part-time actor now and a part-time director uh, mm-hmm. because my main commitment is being at the university, but all of our faculty and all the concentrations, design, stage management, uh, dramaturgy, production, all work professionally and still have that connection. And I think that's really important so that we're in the center of the conversation that's happening as we train our students. Um, what really led me to staying in academia and getting into it in the first place was meeting so many artists that had misinformation about the industry or mm-hmm. they were prepared to be in a show but not get into a show or not know how the thing, whole thing worked. And I would find myself working with interns and younger artists and sort of giving them advice about the industry and wanted to make sure that we can sort of intersect earlier so that they were actually capitalizing on their tremendous talent, um, but not always knowing how to navigate the world of it and training actors in a way that's actually more equitable, actually um, safe. You know, I think a lot of old practices that were effective, but were damaging and trying Mm -hmm. to recenter how actors actually are trained. I love it. Yeah. And I love the phrase, like I'm a part-time actor. I feel like that's always such a tough balance for, you know, students will sometimes say, I really like my faculty to work, but like um, one of my schoolmates right now is a professor at Marymount and is in a doll's house right now where I'm like, well, like, that's not amazing either. I mean, it's amazing in some ways, but it's also like, but you're not going to be in class while you're in tech. Like that, you know, that's a tricky thing too, of, of where your priorities lie. So I, I, find that that, I, I can, I completely agree. And I think one of the things that um, helps us now is, um, you know, one of the happy byproducts of the pandemic was Zoom. Now I can teach a class on Zoom, so I can go direct something or be in a show. And so if, if I get permission, I can do some backstage shots and say, here's what it's like on the ground so that I can still do that asynchronous teaching. But before, you you would just be missing class. And your students class, like, yeah. what am I doing? You know, so it, it does help. It's so true. Um, okay, well, let's dive in a little bit to Rutgers. So I, I want to hear about, especially since you have the unique position of having taught at so many elite acting programs. I mean, really, you've, you've run the gamut here from a Carnegie Mellon or a UNCSA or a DePaul. What do you feel like distinguishes a Rutgers student? If you say our students are, and as it may be different from some of the other um, elite programs, uh, yeah, what would you say? Yeah, I, I would say you know, one of the things that I say a lot, and you know, this is, um, I have such respect for all the other programs and I have colleagues and friends and alumni that I'm still connected with to all those places and many others that I, I, I know of. So I don't I always feel weird. It's almost like we're competing as programs, but I I think for every student, they got to find the best place for them. Mm -hmm. The thing that I think is a hallmark that we're really sort of hanging our head on at Rutgers is that we train the individual. When someone walks out of our school, you don't say that's a Rutgers actor, where Mm -hmm. you may say that about some other institutions, which is totally fine. But for us, we want to lead someone on a journey to find out the best and most expressive version of themselves. we showcase our, our actors. When directors come in to work with our students, they often say, wow, what an interesting group of people. Like these are real people. Um, and that's a different way of approaching, which is why our classes are small, because we can devote more time to figuring out where the individual wants to go in their career. So we're not training to a standard, we're training the individual. And I do think for the 21st century actor, that's so much more important because when you think about identity, you think about representation, it's hard to put people into boxes, to put people into types and styles, as opposed to saying, you tell me who you want to be, and that can change and change and change. And then here's the skill set to support you. So that, I think that's a major distinction, that is that we're, we're still learning all the things that are necessary for an artist to do. Uh, but one phrase I use a lot is we're training you for things that haven't been written yet. So we can't necessarily stand on the shoulders of what's been. We have to say also, you're going to walk into a room with the next artist that is creating a new way and a new paradigm shift, or you may be that artist, and we mm-hmm. want you to be prepared for that as well. It's, it's so well said. Um, well, when you talk about those skill sets, so, so now take me a little through freshman through senior year in terms of what kind of curriculum am I getting? What skills am I building on top of each other? As sure. an actor? Um, yeah, I think we certainly have a reputation as the Meisner School, and that hasn't gone away, although we've certainly, we've certainly scrutinized the Meisner technique for the positive things and sort of purging some of the things that are a little more negative about the technique. And we do that diligently and uh, um, with respect of the technique because we really believe in it. So in the first year, the actors are going to get a well-rounded approach and Meisner's acting base, uh, movement, voice and speech. The voice and speech is in Knight Thompson technique. The uh, movement is in Williamson technique. There's also courses in theater history. There's liberal arts, which all these programs have now. There's no real traditional conservatory where you don't do anything outside of the university because there's a greater commitment of the university that students actually interact with the entire school. So we certainly have those commitments. Some things we've added also are on camera. So you take on camera all four years. They do audition technique all four years because you have to. Like Actors need to know how to work on camera. Think oftentimes programs tack it on at the end as opposed to saying this is this runs in parallel 
with your your stage training. You have to be able to be on stage and be in front of the camera and do all that work. One of the things I, I well, we certainly learned um, in the profession now since COVID is that everything self tapes, everything's up front, and every artist is going to be a multi hyphenate, not just an actor, singer, dancer, but now an actor, producer, writer, filmmaker. And we want to get them as comfortable with all the other aspects of their acting as they would be on camera. So they're doing that all four years. We also add audition technique all four years. Right now, they do a little bit of a hybrid of crew assignments in the first year and understudying so that they can be in the room and learn the process of working. Sometimes, depending on the play, they might play a role, smaller role in the first year as they're starting to learn. So it's really immersive in the experience. And then the Mason Girls School of the Arts has um, collective conversations and classes. So you're in classrooms with students from the dance school and the film school and the music school and the art school. So that we're starting to have a more artistic community. And that's, so that's really how we kind of start. It's like setting the foundation for how to train for the rest of the time that they're there. In the second year, you move into the progression and I teach the second year of Meisner, which is all the things that are in the Meisner progression, but also I have a strong interest in uh, heightened text and rhetoric. So we start storytelling and how that starts to evolve character development building we introduce classes in global theater which is a real world approach to all the theater practices that are happening around the world so that we're not just in one narrow paradigm of what acting is or even what theater art is they start to go into productions so we start to move from the classroom to the stage to start to move them into that process of what it is to apply their training not just be in a place so they don't default back to the habits that they had before. Not that they were bad, some good, some bad, but we got to apply the training, you know, and that really becomes like the center of the, the second year. They start to perform more. They start to have more of a, a balance of their academic demands and the rigor of being in a show. In the third year, and this is a change because the program previously was a three and a half year program because of the MFA program, but now that that's gone, we've expanded to a four year. So in the third year, we start to immerse them in more in-depth scene study. Uh, they take a year-long course in devising, which they will produce a script or produce a show, which we may or we may produce in that third year, or we may produce in the fourth year, just depending on where the project is and its development. They're in production again, so they're moving in. And now we're combining the classes. Historically, it's been each class is their own company and they do all their shows together. But now we're looking to mix that up because it allows for us to uh, expand the programming, uh, diversify the shows we do and not have to pick a show for 16 or 20 people every single time. It's like we can do this popular new play or this classic piece or what have you in the third year. Um, continue with the on-camera, continue with auditioning, starting to expand their vocabulary and understanding of what the industry demands are and expectations. In the fourth year, the students go to London to study Shakespeare at uh, Shakespeare's Globe. Um, that's the current relationship that we have that we've had for 20 years now that Barbara Bouchon started. I'm carrying on that tour. She did an amazing work with Israel Hicks to develop that. That's a be beautiful aspect of our program. Um, but that curriculum there, we've expanded a bit also that they, in addition to their training of Shakespeare in London and living in, in England and getting the immersed experience of being an artist there. We've added courses in drama therapy. We've mm -hmm. added it's an intimacy as a class. You can understand what that is before you ever have to encounter that on stage, learning the rules of consent as well, um, developing text analysis and things of that sort, and getting more broad approach to what theater is in a more, even though it's still Euro, in Europe and Eurocentric, it is still an expanded view. Uh, that culminates in a performance on the Globe stage, and then they come back, and then we get deep into showcase mode, career development, business of the business, all those things. Well, and I can't wait to talk about that specifically. I mean, that is wonderfully comprehensive explanation there. The the on camera class you mentioned all four years. I still think are there you know obviously most of what you're learning is theater, and you mentioned different styles of theater, rhetoric, Shakespeare. Are there other medium that you're uh, sort of preparing them for in terms of commercials, voiceovers, other non-TV um, and film sort of stuff um, in the acting world? Yeah, I mean, we, we, um, we're still working, developing the voiceover components. So I don't want to commit to that yet, but we would love to. Uh, but we certainly are trying to look at collaborations with the film school to look at more animation and things of that sort, depending on where their curriculum lines up. Um, all How to make their own films, like make a 10-minute sh shorter or, or smaller, what it is to work on camera in that way. Excuse me. Uh, we also have a, a MFA playwriting program, so the students over the time help and work with the playwrights to develop those projects and actually perform those in their either third or fourth year, depending on how the schedule breaks down. So they're looking at new works, classic works, works in development, and on camera, so TV scripts, film scripts, etc.
I love it. And what if I am a musical theater person, right? A lot of our listeners, a lot of who will apply to acting schools like Rutgers or UNCSA, some of the places you've taught, but who also are at least musical theater curious. They, they like doing musicals. How would I prepare or continue my musical training if I'm someone who, who's interested in that realm as well? Yeah, so I won't lie to you. Like, you know, we don't, we don't, we aren't a musical theater program. You know, I, I think the great musical theater programs out there are fantastic. I've worked with some of them. Um, if someone is committed to doing MT, I wouldn't say we're the place to go. Um, what I would say is that if you, and we do have a lot of students who are amazing singers and amazing musicians and amazing dancers, but we don't offer that as a, as the rigor that would make them competitive, like a Michigan, a Carnegie Mellon or whatnot. So I would never pretend to be that. Um, we, we've worked out collaborations with, the dance school so the students in the first year take um, a jazz or african dance class we're having collaboration and conversation with the music department but that's more classical voice not quite what a musical theater student might want but those students that we have and i'd say in the first year there's about 12 who are remarkable singers um, they just wanted a more acting concentration they either maintain their relationship with their voice teachers or go to new york um, because we're a 40 minute to an hour train right away from mm-hmm. the city but it's not what we do and i wouldn't want to mislead someone to thinking that's what we did I love that. Well, and then you started to do it, um, but I just want to continue the sort of launch into the business side of things. So from the showcase, but then also sort of preparing and, and beyond the showcase, what does Rutgers do to prepare you for the world? Yeah, uh, several things. Um, one is a lot of the guests, like most, the majority of our guests, the goal is always to have guest directors, new and upcoming directors, established directors, to direct the place they work on, to develop those relationships. The on-camera class are taught by current filmmakers, so they have people to collaborate with there. Um, we bring in guests from the industry. One of the benefits to being so close to New York and, quite frankly, having Zoom is that we can Zoom in people from major theaters all over the world, but certainly New York City, um, in preparation for the showcase. And I think most programs do this, so it's not unique to Rutgers. I wouldn't want to pretend that it is. We try to bring as many guests as we can, casting directors, VP of of, uh, of casting, executive directors, managers, agents. So we start to build and learn that relationship. We bring in representation from the unions. Even things like how to do your taxes, how to find an apartment in New York, you know, which is really important because mm-hmm. it's expensive. Um, so that they walk out armed with the working knowledge and knowing how to put their training to work because many schools train the ideal circumstance of how to be in a show, but not how to navigate the world to get into that show. Uh, I think it was Billy Porter who said this years ago, it was like, you go to a conservatory, they guess they assume you can act. What they want to know is how are you to work with? <laughs> do you know the business? Can you nav- navigate this thing? And do you have staying power? Cause that's, what's going to carry the, the work of time. So we, we talk practically about the business and make sure that they understand what it is they're getting into um, for good and for bad. Cause there is a lot of work involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about, you mentioned, you know, those liberal arts responsibilities that is outside of the theater program. What does Rutgers afford a prospective student? And, and what have you seen some of your students take advantage of um, at Rutgers? Sure. We, we roughly have to have a requirement of about 33 non-department uh, or non-concentration uh, credits required in liberal arts. And some of those are can cross list with theater history because we try to spare their schedule sometimes when it's just easier to take things in their in their own building. But there are students who have minored in things. I think we have a first-year student right now who's attempting double major in business. Um, and they're doing all right. You know, they, There's an I eyebrow think, raise, as Cameron says, attempting. Attempting? Yes, because yes. I look at the schedule and I'm like, I don't know how you're doing that. And mm-hmm. they're like, we're going to make it work. I'm like, well, we will, we will support you as best we can. But, you know, Rutgers has three campuses in New Jersey, which allows mm-hmm. students to actually see some amazing things and meet with some amazing uh, professors and dabble in other areas that interest them. And I think it's really important for a conservatory student because you've got to be interested in the world in order to mm-hmm. make art. What's it all for if you're just thinking about your dream role? Mm-hmm. So they get out there and sometimes it's just getting across campus to listen to a lecture. You know, uh, Angela Davis was here last semester and a lot of students got to go and we mm-hmm. actually an Anna Devere Smith production and Angela Davis was one of the characters. So they got to, you know, sort of put some connections there. But even outside of that, there are students who have interests in the sciences in uh, writing in history and gender studies and all kinds of things. And they, they seek those courses out. It's, it's hard to navigate with the schedule, but we actually try to build the schedule so that there's time to take the majority of the available liberal arts classes uh-huh. at a time when the rest of the university is. That's really helpful. I mean, I remember that at Carnegie Mellon that we, that was the big flaw. It wasn't that we had zero time in our schedule, but they never lined up well with how to potentially do a minor. How to, it was really difficult. And and it was discouraged there. They were not saying, go do a minor. They were saying. Yeah, so we're, we're just, you know, we're saying we're going to make the room for it. You know, the priority, obviously, is the work you have to do in your major. But 
we don't want to deny someone these multiple interests that they have. So we, we try to make the room as best we can. And it's, it's hard, but we try to do it. Totally. Um, talk to me a little, if you know this, I know you may have all the stats in front of you, but just a, a sense of where your students come from and sure. then where your students end up. So, you know, where they, if they come from all over the country, all over the world, what kind of what that breakdown is, and then how many end up in that New York versus LA versus Chicago, et cetera. Sure. I would say on average, our students come from the Northeast area. I would say primarily in a given class, maybe a third of them are from the New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. Philadelphia area, but we have students from as far away as Japan, Idaho, and California, um, students from Ireland and London. We have students from all over the world. Um, I would say when they graduate, there's usually it usually varies per class. You know, if, if we have a lot of students that are from the Midwest or West Coast, they tend to want to go back to L.A. when they graduate. Uh, but I think a lot of students do settle into New York City. Um, they've got so much relationship to it, having been around it for three and a half to four years. Um but it really, it really is all encompassing. And now that the industry, you know, is sort of overlapping itself in that you can shoot great film and television in New York and you can do theater in L.A., people are going to mm-hmm. go all over the place. Um, but one of the things we talk about is, you know, I, I, I kind of crudely say, well, where do you want to be broke? You know, when you are <laughs> you know, auditioning and not booking and you have a daytime job mm-hmm. and you get a day off, where do you want to be? Are you a rooftop party kind of person? New York City is going to be for you. Do you need to be next to the ocean and the temperatures, mm-hmm. you know, are, are more desert-like? Well, maybe LA is for you. Do you want to, like, get gritty into theater? Let's think about Chicago or D.C., Atlanta. Atlanta market is blowing up. So they're, oh, yeah. they're starting to get such a, a, a wider understanding of what the industry is and what their what their tastes and interests are. So it, it's kind of all-encompassing, but I think right now, if I had to say the majority probably start the first two to three years after graduation in New York City. In New York, yeah. That makes sense. Um, And talk to me a little bit about cost um, in terms of, you know, we looked up the basic in-state versus out-of-state tuition at around 36,000 in-state, around 54,000 out-of-state. How does that work with, like, scholarships? I know you're not going to be able to give me the exact answer, but, you know, what percentage of your students come in with a substantial scholarship? How many are paying that full sticker price? I mean, how does that work if I'm, I'm applying to Rutgers and I go, that's yeah. a big dollar figure? Yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, we're, we're you know, it's going up everywhere. And that's the thing that's a big sticking point. I, I wish we had full rides. We don't yet. We do the best we can. Um, we do offer some almost full tuition scholarships, but that you still would probably on, be on the hook for uh, room and board. Um, there's a there's a thing called the Garden State Promise and the Scarlet Promise. So if you're in uh, the state of New Jersey as a student and you meet a certain um, uh, financial requirement, you could get full tuition waived. Um, so we we love that and we try to recruit students from in state for that benefit. Um, I don't know that any student is paying. 100%. We try to offer some scholarship to everyone, but yep. in, it's either need-based or merit-based. So as you mentioned before, like one thing to the parents is make sure those FAFSA forms are filled out fully and early and just list all the schools because it's all coded. There's a code for each school. And then as your student is applying, that information gets sent to the university so they can offer an award letter early. The longer you wait, um, the more aid may be distributed on a, on, a, uh, on a declining scale only because they're responding to who they have in front of them. Yep. That, that can be a variable that can, you know, right now decision day is today and some students are, you know, asking now, like, well, can you offer me more money? It's like, no, it's all distributed. <laughs> like, you know, we, we, maybe we can, maybe we can't, you know? Um, so I think the earlier they get out in front of that, the better and being clear about what their need is. Um, I think it's important for, students and parents know also that you can appeal. You can appeal any offer. It's just the first offer. It's like a negotiation. And I don't think that's mentioned enough that you can ask for more. They, you yeah. may or may not get it, but it's better to put out there that like, hey, I've got three kids going to school. This is not just yeah. the one. And you're basing this off of my income. So it's a lot of factors like that. But going back to your original question, um, I would say on average in a class of 16 to 20, all of them are receiving some aid. Some are receiving um, more it's usually a combination of need and merit that in which yep. we determine that. Totally makes sense. And I love you. Yeah. You mentioning the, you can negotiate. It's like, it feels like a closely guarded secret that people like, it really is. I don't, I don't like, I know. This is what I got. Yeah. yeah. Let it. I wish I had. There. 
Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, the you mentioned May first. So here we are recording on May first, National Decision Day. Um, what do you feel like as you're negotiating and right after this call? Maybe it's going to happen more of uh, people who are tra- getting ready to sign on the dotted line, or some who may be saying, "I was between you and one other, one other school, and I've gone in a different direction." Hopefully, for the sake of those students, they've not waited till today to tell you this. But as that's been happening over the past couple of weeks. Uh-huh. What do you feel like makes them sign on the dotted line and say, it is Rutgers for me? And why do they sometimes say, here's why I'm going to go to a different school? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's I think some of the things are, are the same as they've always been. You know, there are some students that grew up in this area, in this Northeast area, and want to go away from home and want to go as far as possible. So if they get into a school in California, they're going. We can't be California. I, you know, I wish, you know, um, there are some students that, you know, they are MT focused and we were their backup. And that's just mm-hmm. to be honest. Like, and if they got into the MT program they want to go to, they're going to go there because that's what they want to do. And we can't compete with that. Um, and then there are some programs that either by reputation, you know, a lot of students love UNCSA. It's a remarkable program. And their, their students are working right now. And that's a lot of buzz. Carnegie Mellon's always going to pull people. Juilliard's wonderful. So I, I do think sometimes if a student gets into the, one of those schools, which I would put it like the top tier, they're going to go, and that's that's quite all right. Um, I, I want everyone to go to where they feel best. I think the things that draw people here um, is the commitment we have to the training of the individual, the on camera for all four years auditioning. People who have an understanding of what the Meisner technique is really are like, oh, I want to do that there because we are one of the schools that do it in a more robust way. Um, the proximity to New York helps as well, and uh, to be honest, price. I mean, at comparative price, there are some schools that are getting very close to a hundred thousand dollars a year. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that helps, you know? <laughs> yeah. There was a, this, this year I was noticing some of our students were saying if all in, it was going to be over a hundred thousand for some of these schools. With, and that's just unbelievable. I, to think my life. There, there would be, for me, it wouldn't even be in some cases I wouldn't even apply to when I was that young because I'm like, I can't afford that. There's just no way. How? Who can? I mean, it's yeah, unbelievable. Um, so you mentioned safety or, you know, I mentioned the idea of some of the changes with enacting training. These would be things that maybe you are bringing to your own training. It could be things that you're bringing to Rutgers. What are some of those updates, you know, taking things out of maybe an old school version of doing things that felt like maybe it, it bordered on psychologically unsafe, if that's what you're talking about? What are some of the changes that you've made um, in that direction? I mean, some of it is literally what you just said, like removing the psychology from it. Like we're not psychologists. And I think sometimes people were results oriented. So if they could evoke an emotion out of you, that that was good acting, but they didn't teach you how to get there on your own and they didn't teach you how to repeat it. And that puts a person in a place where they just keep trying to recreate or hash up something traumatic for themselves, especially in this time when we're trying to be mindful of and respectful and take care of people's mental health and their whole well-being. We have to train, change the way we train. You know, so we are really focusing on the, the artist-led, and by artist I mean the student, the student-led transparent conversation about this is what we're working on today. Are you up for it? Doesn't mean that we're coddling, doesn't mean that we're not getting the work done. It's just saying some days it's easier than other days. Some days there's stuff going on in your personal life. Some days you're just not, you know, X, Y, and Z. Well, we want to be able to work on the long game, which is how can you approach this work safely and get out of it safely so that it's not taxing on your person. Because I personally I've seen the work consumes so many people and the way it's designed you know, we're working late hours and it can easily fall into a bad pattern, but there's a way to be effective and believable and repeatable without it damaging your person. So we take that time to have those conversations. How do you warm up? How do you get into the work? How do you distinguish what the story is and what your function is versus I've got to believe it, feel it, be it, and rip my heart open. Mm -hmm. I would see students do amazing work in the classroom and then not know how to translate it to the stage or in front of a camera. I was like, well, then what was that for? Who was that for? You know? So we're, we, we really take that seriously of like, you're, it's, it is a craft and it isn't, there isn't an artistic expectation in the profession, but part of the job is also to train you how to do that effectively and safely and be able to get home and have a safe, comfortable life, relationships, family, friendship, et cetera, not resent the work and feel pain by it. You know, in the same way you work out, if you're in pain, indication to stop. If it hurts, it means growth is happening. And we want to be able to help students grow, not destroy themselves. 
It's so well said, yeah. And and thinking of it in terms of what is repeatable and what is sustainable, I think it's so helpful because I do think sometimes actors feel like, oh God, but I don't want to not go as deep. I don't want to, I do want to push myself, but it's like, this is how you can push yourself in a way that actually is useful to you on a night by night basis. Absolutely. Um, all right, well, let's take a short break. And on the back end of the break, we're going to jump into the audition and admission process with Cameron. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. We are back with Cameron Knight, and we're going to talk about the audition process a bit. Um, and I'm going to ask you a broad general question, which is just, what do you feel like, in short, makes a good audition for you? Being well prepared being well prepared and understanding the aesthetic or the room you're auditioning for. You know, um, I think too often students are told to find the quote perfect piece and then do that. Um, but there, there's no such thing. There's material that works for you. And then there's material that works for you in certain situations in certain rooms and being very clear about that. But I think, and this is no fault of any high school student or, or transfer student that's applying, is that they sometimes think their acting is pushing and being emotive, mm-hmm. but you can you can actually push <laughs> the audition away from yourself if you're not actually telling a truthful story. Mm-hmm. So we look for a deep connection to the circumstances as they would affect you, and because of that, we have some particular uh, guidelines for how to select or what type of material to select. Yeah, talk um, about this. So, yeah, what kind of material do you really like to see? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things I removed is um, Shakespeare. It's optional. You can do Shakespeare if you want. But for me, I don't want to have the requirement or the thing that I'm going to assess you on be something that you haven't learned how to do yet and uh-huh. that we will teach you how to do. Uh-huh. But if you think about it, you audition in high school for with the Shakespeare piece to get into college. And then in most cases, you don't come back to Shakespeare until your second or third year. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't I work on something that's more akin to where you are right now? Um, and one thing I'm adding to that is I want them to pick contemporary material. And I tend to start with the cutoff being the year they were born. Uh-huh. So uh, this year, I think all the, the majority of the students were born in 2005. So, mm-hmm. so pick material that's, that's from 2005 forward. Don't mm-hmm. give me Our Town. Don't give me Thornton Wilder. Don't give me Death of a Salesman. Mm-hmm. You know, And they're all wonderful, but they are becoming stylized and dated pieces of material mm-hmm. that don't get me any closer to knowing who you are. And there's such great material out there, you know, go to the um, uh, uh, Kilroy's list, go to new, new play exchange, like find new material because that's going to allow you to have a better sense of connection that you can use yourself as the source because that's where the industry is right now. You know, they're not looking, they're not quite looking for transformer, transformative acting right now. They're looking for yep. believability, honesty, and one speaking from themselves and their experience. And especially if you're a young artist of color, if you're a black artist, if you're a trans artist, Pick material. There's people writing right now. Mm-hmm. Your stories, and it's not a stereotype. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a it's not a best friend. It's actually you're the center of the story, and you can have depth. And I would say look for that material because it's out there. So that's what we, where we tend to start. And then in the room, you know, we want you to come in and you know tell us a story. Tell us yep. a story. Yeah. It's so well said. It, it makes me feel old when I think of like the Eric Bogosian pieces and the things that were like so hip and young. And I'm like, that's not for them. That's dated. Like I remember having a student read one of those and go, this feels dated on you. <laughs> I can't do it. Well, on me, it felt contemporary at the time. Exactly. But, you know. I remember hearing one in an audition. I was like, wait, I did this piece when I did yeah. How is this? How is Long this still dead, You know? Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it makes so much sense with Shakespeare. I mean, it, it makes me so sad because I'm of course a Shakespeare lover, but the, when, you know, 
I, I help a student really discover Shakespeare. It's so thrilling. But I'm like, I'm not really, you're not really seeing this student's aptitude with Shakespeare. You're seeing what it's like to learn. And if someone exactly. doesn't have the same resources, it's, it is a little unfair. And every, and every so often a, a student will come in and say, I really like the Shakespeare piece. A student this year did a, a Romeo, I think it was. It was remarkable. I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, come on. But I don't want it to be a requirement for the student yeah. who feels like I don't do that well yet. In the same way, I wouldn't have a student sing 32 bars. It's like, well, if you're not a singer, then that's an unfair requirement totally. to assess your, your ability. Totally. Um, let me ask you a, maybe an impossible question, but like, how do you define acting talent? Because um, I think when, when we hear a singer who's like, oh my God, what a beautiful singer, we can see there's some objective standards and same thing with dance of, you know, the you're kicking your face or you're not kicking your face. There's those kind of objective measures. When you, if you were to say someone walked out of the room and go, that's such a talented actor. What are you measuring that rubric on? Like what, what makes you feel like this person's really good or has maybe even more importantly has potential to be good in four years based on what? Yeah, I mean, the subjective part of it is believability. Can they, do they seem to be comfortable in their own skin or are they simply projecting an idea at me? Are they playing at a character? Um, or can they, can they be honest and surprised by their own acting? You know, mm-hmm. you, can, you can tell when something's so rehearsed that no matter what, they're going to give it to you. I'm like, well, that's, that's, you're doing exactly what you were coached to do or decided to do, but I don't know if you're there for it. They're projecting idea um if they can take an adjustment you know we'll we'll work, try if there's time and we you know we almost always go over and almost every room does because we're trying to work with them and say can you just be simple can you simply tell me what that means to you and just use these words to do it we ask people to paraphrase and play because we want to get a sense and also give them a sense of how we work you know because for, for some people we work with them and they're like thank you for that that was great but that's not how i want to train i'm going to go somewhere like that's fine but I think the, the measure is like, can a person, you know, you can almost see it when they first inhale. It's like, okay, they're here or they're, they're bound up trying to like uh, stir up emotion. You know, you can see people, they've got an idea of where it's got to go. And then they start and they're, they're already crying or they're already yelling or they're already tipping the chair over. And I'm like, you don't mean any of that. <laughs> you know, like you don't have to do all that. Like, what does it mean? for you to come from this honest set of circumstances. Have you thought about what those are? So we start to give them a glimpse and we give them a chance to try and adjust. And if they, if there's a glimpse, we're like, great. Like we can, the rest will teach you, you know, but we just want to see if you're capable of, of doing that, even in the scary circumstances of sitting across from two strangers, asking you to do something that you may not have ever encountered before. Totally. And does this advice change at all? Are there any different pieces of advice for the sort of different mediums that they may audition on? Like whether it's an online audition, um, whether it's an in-person on campus, whether it's a at Unifieds or, you know, if in the different situations, is there any sort of differences in terms of how you would approach things? I think so. I mean, certainly for a, um, for a self-tape and a lot of, uh, and, you know, a lot of schools are doing pre-screens. We haven't quite gotten there yet, but we might this upcoming fall. We just don't know. Um, and in those pre-screens, being very clear that it's, it is by its nature different than acting on a stage. So if you're in a three-quarter shot, you know, or if you're in a tight shot, where's the story? Making sure that you don't play to the camera, but that you're, you are aware that it's being picked up so that you can, we can see the subtle nuances of your storytelling. And it's going to feel different. It's going to be experienced different than being on a stage. When you get into the rooms, you know, at the Unifieds or if you go on campus, you know, get there a little early and get a sense of the space so you can calm yourself down, meet the people, get the vibe of the energy of the place. You know, those Unifieds in New York and L.A. and Chicago can can feel so, like, you know, ramped up because you, you've got someone singing your song in the room next door and someone's warming up with your monologue in the elevator and you're like, oh, my God, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, in the sense of all that chaos, it's live theater. You know, get a sense of the people in the room. And really, you know, if you need to, take a moment, ask a question. Openly say, I'm a little nervous. Is it all right if I take a breath? You know, because mm-hmm. we want you to do well. We want you to succeed. But when you're sending a pre-screen, we don't get that interaction. So you really want that pre-screen to, to showcase your work very well because what you're really doing is asking for a callback. So we're expecting that to be that might be the only interaction with you we get and we won't be able to ask for an adjustment from the self-tape. So you really want to make sure that that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a strong showing of your work. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had to estimate, how much do you think of your decision to give an artistic yes or no, how much of that decision is based on 
the work you initially see in the two contrasting pieces versus those things we're talking about of adjustments or interview questions, like how much is the holistic person that you're meeting and how much is the talent in those two, three minutes of, of monologue mm-hmm. work? I would say it's probably 50-50. You know, there have been some people that were just remarkably talented. And then the interview was like, oh, I don't want to be around this person for four mm-hmm. years. Like they are mean. <laughs> like they were mean. Or or some, or the monitor in the hallway says like, they're really, they're really rude. Um, mm-hmm. Like who you are as a person matters because it's going to be a four-year commitment of your time and ours, and we want to be with a person that we can grow and expand with. Now, sometimes those that what may be perceived as as rudeness comes out of nerves. You're just being off because you're nervous and you don't want to do anything. You know, um, to, that would harm anybody. But I, I do think you know, getting to know who they are as a person. You know, we we tend to ask questions that have nothing to do with theater. Like, you know, what do you do for vacation? How did you, how was the, how did you adapt to the pandemic, you know, uh, or even like, what have you read personally? We want to know who you are as a human being, because we're trying to get a sense of, of where you want to take your artistry. And we're trying to assemble a class. So we want people that are have different experiences, different walks of life. You know, it isn't always the most quote talented person, but it's the person who's like, that's a great human being. That would be a wonderful artist and con- contribution to the community. Um, not only of the school, but of the industry as a whole. And we're trying to get those different perspectives in the, in the space. Well, I'd love to hear a little more about that too. As, as you're thinking about filling out your class and the cohort of 16 to 20 people, what else is going, obviously you're looking for talented people, you're looking for individuals. Are you conscious of stuff like gender balance and height balance and size balance and racial diversity and geographical balance? And I'd love to especially maybe hear about how does that factor into, as we're on May 1st, the initial offers and then potentially the waitlist movement as you're trying to sort of keep a cohort together? Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly are aware of all of it. One of the things that I, I, I sort of stand firmly on is I will take the best class I can get, regardless of those modifiers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Even if I, they're all 6'6", six, six, you have, you have a whole basketball team, you're like, I'm, I'm into it. Yeah, but we'll, we'll do a lot of, you know, we'll do Lombardi and some other stuff, you know. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll do bird, yeah, magic versus bird, whatever. Exactly, yeah. we'll get all those in, you know. Um, because I, I don't, like... One thing, like just just statistically true, is that the majority of applicants are female assigned at birth Mm -hmm. or female identifying. So Mm -hmm. if you say we're going to take 12 and 12 or 10 and 10, then you're eliminating people regardless of their talent, you know, Mm -hmm. or or their merit or or their capacity. So we just don't do that. At the same time, I'm very aware of I do want to make space for students that are maybe disadvantaged because of privilege or access, students of color, people who might be first generation trans students, I want them to be able to come to an environment that is safe and and available for them to work by making space. Because if a person is in one part of their journey, they may not be able to commit the time or may not have the resources to work on their acting in the same way. doesn't Mm -hmm. mean they won't be a great artist or actor in the future. So we're on the lookout for like, well, who would thrive here if given the chance? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you put one person next to another and go, well, we have, I hate that word of type, like we have one of those. I'm like, no, I you two are amazing. Come here, you know? Uh-huh. So I'm trying trying to assemble a group of people who are compassionate, empathetic, talented artists, and the rest can shake out however it needs to shake out while being aware that, well, yeah, we do want diversity in the many ways that that manifests and ex- exists, but we're not bound by it. Love it. And when you talk about, so this has all sort of been the artistic version of a yes, right? Let's say you do definitely want someone artistically. How does it then work with the university in terms of their academics, their SATs? You know, do other aspects of the application factor in academically, like their essays or their letters of recommendation, anything yeah. like that? Yeah, they certainly do. Like, so it's interesting because the dynamic here that we, I haven't had at other institutions, but we get their, um, application in their their essay but we don't get to see their transcripts so a different office will once we send them our list of like these are the people we would like to admit they go through and look at their transcripts look at their academic history and say this person is not admissible and if they aren't they contact them and say hey can we talk about these grades you got at this point in time would you disclose to us what's happening in your life because there might be a reason why Uh or uh, it's contingent upon your final grades when you graduate from high school in May. And then based on that, okay, if you can maintain some strength, we can carry you in. So uh-huh. sometimes we have someone we're really excited about, but the university says they will struggle in this program. So they're not admissible. And that we go back and forth and back and forth. And sometimes I go, well, we'll make it work. You know, we try to do the best we can. <laughs> yeah. um, but those do, things do, do play a factor. One thing I would say to all applicants, your essay is not an 
not a, not, I would not recommend it as an opportunity to disclose your deepest, darkest secrets. Sometimes people think they need to write about their struggles. Some people have confessed things in their essay. Some people have said things. I'm like, that is not actually doing what you think it's doing. It's actually putting you in a position that we're concerned about your well-being. And that may trigger a different alarm in terms of mental health, security, and things of that sort. So I would, I would really, and that's why we write, write very specific prompts for the students to respond to, because sometimes people just, they think they've got to open their soul and say, this happened to me when I was X, Y, and Z. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not qualified to handle that information. And universities are mandated reporters if there is information that's disclosed to them. So we would have to tell somebody. So I would, I would be very careful about that because I don't think, I know for a fact the essays don't always do what people think they're going to do. And they can actually talk your, you out of an, uh, an opportunity. And how do you, per so do you read the essays before auditions, after auditions? Are you reading just the supplements? Or are you reading the Common App essay as well? How do you interact with that? Um, I read them beforehand. So usually um, it's on a rolling basis as applications come in. So when I go to New York, um, I'm looking at all the New York applications before I get to reading the essays, getting a sense of where, where they are in location, just kind of getting all that stuff. And so I can get a sense of who's going to walk through the door. Uh, and then I review them uh, in the room while they're auditioning. And then I look at them in the interview process so I can pluck out some things to talk about um, from their essay. Um, and then we, I don't know that we see, receive the Common App application Essays. We have three specific prompts for our supplementals for you. Else, yeah, and those are the ones we see. Totally. And what about a letter of recommendation? Do you ever read the letters of rec? Yeah, we started requesting those, and um, a lot of people will send them ahead to us, and we read those. And I do read them because they, they do make a factor. You know, teachers will be very honest, or they'll advocate for somebody, and that can be very useful. I've had letters that say this person was a problem for me, and if you take them. Be aware about how people say, um, this person, you know, may come off as really shy, but that you will not find a better student in the world. I'm like, that means something to me, you know, because you want to, we, it's hard to hinge an entire experience off of one 10 minute inter interview and audition. And it would be unfair to not look at all the information that makes up the totality of a person. I love it. Um, just a few more questions. So in terms of how have you dealt with the um, post-COVID, post-pandemic reality that we're in now in terms of, I'd love to hear about any adjustments that you feel like Rutgers is taking out of the, the pandemic experience, both in terms of anything virtual or any of the conversations about um, EDI stuff. Um, and then also like, yeah, what is moving forward? Are, are you continuing virtual auditions? How are you uh, um, changing, if at all, from yeah. the pandemic? Yeah, in terms of auditioning, we, we will always have virtual auditions now as an option because it just eliminates the lack of equity. You know, it, it costs so much money for a family, even if it's just one one parent or one guardian and that uh, applicant to go to New York or Chicago or LA, the prices are so expensive. And a lot of people can still get admitted to school auditioning virtually. So we will always offer that for, for just the equity of it. Um, overall, you know, we've sort of, I call it spring cleaning, but we've looked at our entire curriculum ethos the way we do lots of things at Rutgers and we approach them with greater transparency and greater communication with the students so that they're more actively involved in how the school is structured, how we select seasons, how we, how we interact with each other and leading with that, you know, looking for, um, so what are the actionable things we can do right now? What are the things that are, are going to take a year? What things will take five years so that we're always working towards a more, um, representative and equitable institution while maintaining the artistic rigor that the school is known for and the students come for, but approaching everything from, you know, microaggressions to uh, resources to mental health resources so that students can, can be conscious of and confident in that they're, they will be taken care of. And we're not perfect on that. We're still working on it, but we're listening and we're working and we're not just listening, we're listening and taking action. You know, for me, it's like, it's not enough to go, we hear you. It's enough to go. And you can come back in six months and see this happen. You can come back next week and see that happen and change. One of the big things we've been working on now is for, um, uh, uh, students with disabilities, um, you know, neurodivergency, making sure space is more hospitable and accommodating for students in that way as well. Um, because not always do students want to disclose and nor should they have to, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing the work. Uh -huh, it's so true. We had a couple of students who had physical disabilities um, in this, this last audition year. And it was, 
it, it wasn't that schools were not accommodating. It was interesting, though, just really seeing how different the response was and how, how they had to manage stuff like housing and all these different things that was just, it's re- really different from school to school. So as they're weighing multiple options, they're saying, well, our housing deadline is this, but they're going, I haven't even heard back from this other school yet. Like this stuff is really difficult. And, yeah. you know. it's, it's such a rotating scale. So I, I think the more that we are on the lookout for it and thinking about how do we make this space work for everyone? the more that doesn't become an issue at all. Or if it does, the resources are already in place to accommodate and deal with it then to go, oh my God, we can't do that, you know? Yeah, well, and to the point of what you were saying earlier, it also just increases the strength of the program for everyone, if yeah, if that's true. Um, uh, we'll wrap with, uh, we mentioned a little bit about parents. What would you advise, maybe especially for our junior listeners, so they're just really beginning their process, um, looking toward next year um, and younger, what would you advise to the parents who are listening of, of how they can best navigate this process, how they can best help, best help their children um, go through the process? Yeah, um, if you can, visit campuses. Um, If you can, reach out to the recruiting offices, reach out to faculty, um, set up conversations. Zoom is easy. Most people will hop on a Zoom call and talk to you and answer questions. Um, I think it's, you know, I want to offer to put some minds at ease that your your child, your student, will have a career if they study the arts. (laughs) They will have a career. Um, The arts are a multi-billion dollar industry. And Mm -hmm. though many people come into it planning to be actors or designers, stage managers, there are so many tentacles of what this industry does. If you go back and think about the lockdown, imagine the lockdown without books, without music, without television, without streaming, without puzzles, without all those things. Those Mm -hmm. are all artistic endeavors and expressions. Everything from Tesla to Amazon uses artists and their minds to work in concert with STEM. So that's the first thing that, um, and you want a program that supports your student in thinking creatively in multiple ways, not just in a singularity. But the more, there's so much information out there, but there's also so much misinformation out there. But there's so so many like Facebook and Instagram chat groups of parents that are, students are in the process right now or students are in the program. So there's a network of community so you can get answers to questions that you you have. Um, The university obviously is going to give you answers, but you can get you can get unbiased answers from other parents and alumni because that's mm-hmm. one great resource for your social media. For those, I know there, there might be a, um, an expense attached, um, but programs like Cherubs at Northwestern, Rutgers has RSAC as a summer program, Carnegie Mellon has their summer program. There's so many programs that allow the students to get a sense of what it is before they have to go at a fraction of the cost. And in to the degree that you can afford it, and many of them offer scholarships, it's worth it because some students would probably want to be in a BA program, not a BFA program. Mm. That distinction is very important. So I think the more you can arm yourself with information, the better it's going to be for all of you. So well said. Yeah, I remember I I did Carnegie Mellon's pre-college program way back in the day. Um, And I remember one of my best friends of that program, um, who I'm still friends with to this day, what he realized from it is, I'm not ready for a conservatory. And he didn't go to one. I'm like, well, you just saved $200,000 to not go to a conservatory. Exactly. Exactly. And, And you still can have, you know, a very successful career not having gone to a conservatory mm-hmm. you know there's so many ways to be successful in this industry and one more thing i would say so many people are applying to like 16 and 20 schools it's a lot of application fees most schools do have a waiver for those fees you just have to find it they don't make it easy to find so i just think you know being strategic is going to be the way to go well that that last little bit of advice was like six different great pieces of advice i love and i, I do i've said it before on the podcast but i do just echo the how many different how many different fields you can enter from this degree? I think parents sort of look at the numbers of what percentage of actors are working on Broadway or working in TV. And you go, okay, but that's a very small subset of what you can do with this exactly. degree and still be exactly. a successful, happy person. People um, are going to be speechwriters for mayors and governors and presidents. I mean, heck yeah. <laughs> We got our hands on it. <laughs> we got our hands on it. Um, if people want to find out more information specifically specifically about Rutgers, where would you send them? Is there a website? Do you like yeah. Instagram, Facebook? How do you want them following you? I would say, you know, I'm I'm not the most Instagram savvy, but I am on there. But on on, um, on the Rutgers Mason Grove School of the Arts website, uh, my email address is there. There's a lot of information about all the programs in Mason Grove. Mm-hmm. That would be probably the best way to reach me. Um, 
uh, I'll give you my email address if you want to attach it to this or I can say it. You'll we'll throw it in the footnotes for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then feel free to reach out. Like I, I usually respond pretty quickly. Um, and then there's, you know, like all of us pockets of time where it might take me a little bit longer, but mm -hmm. I'm always there to respond to answer any questions. Also reaching out to the admissions office, um, Emmalina Thompson, who works for Rutgers, who's amazing, would be a great resource as well. I love it. Well, Cameron, thank you so much for the time today. This was such a joy. My pleasure. Thank you. My liege, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Cameron. Um, I found him to be absolutely delightful. I had heard many great things from some of his former students across those awesome universities you heard all about, but I hadn't actually gotten to sit down with him, and it was great to do so. Uh, the only thing I didn't like about Cameron is that he seemed to be throwing down his gauge in that sultry voice category, and I was definitely not confident it was a joust I could win. There you have it, Megan. Have I now overdone the night analogies? Well, you're just going to have to live with it. Um, I'm going to do a quick buffet of takeaways here. I'm grabbing onto a number of things Cameron said. I really actually had like eight written down, but I'm going to try to dig into three of them a little bit. Um, I'll start off with the financial stuff. I thought some really great advice in terms of completing the FAFSA early. We're going to do a webinar in September with all of our MTCA families on just this topic of how to set yourself up for financial aid as successfully as possible. I love what he said about negotiation, the, basically the idea that it's a first offer and you can appeal. I think that should be much more public information than it seems to be. And also his advice about fee waivers. I think with both of those things, it's just such a good lesson for this process and I think for life in general in that you don't get what you don't ask for. It can never hurt to ask and see what can be done. We've had a number of students be so successful in the financial aid negotiation world. Almost too many stories to tell about that in terms of really great um, negotiation and renegotiation that's happened. But also in general in this process, just the idea of like, it cannot hurt to ask. It can never hurt to give it a shot and see what happens. Um, it makes me think of we had one of our students at Unified this year. Uh, he walked up to the table at Boston Conservatory Boston Conservatory, who was resolutely not accepting walk-ins. Walk-ins is stuff you may have heard a little bit about in terms of a part of this process where you audition without applying. This is not something that Boston Conservatory was willing to do. But this student told them that he tried to apply, and he had just missed the deadline. I forget exactly what it was that he missed. Either he didn't submit the pre-screen, or he never finished his application, but he clearly had tried. He had some proof that he'd tried, but hadn't succeeded at it. And, you know, he just asked, could they make an exception? Is there any way, you know, it seemed like you know, he really wanted to audition. He was here. Is there any, any chance he could get in the room? And they thought about it and they got back to him with a reopened portal and instructions on what to do. And he did like a 24-hour turnaround on an application. This is in January, long past the deadline at this point. He auditions basically as a walk-in, even though he's done this application now suddenly. And guess where he just declared his final decision on May 1st? It can never hurt to ask in this process. I also really enjoyed Cameron's conversation about safety. Um, I think different people will fall in different places on the spectrum of what exactly that means in terms of you know actors being safe. Um, you heard Marsha DeBonis express her belief that if you want to be safe, don't be an actor. Um, and we've had many colleges express almost the exact opposite belief that actors basically should never be putting themselves in any kind of um, risk or psychological harm um, in a classroom. I can't say I have something genius about where exactly I fall, um, but I think it is absolutely a conversation that is deeply affecting the industry from colleges, through rehearsals, and onto film sets of you know what an actor can and should put themselves through, what, what is their responsibility of putting them, themselves through something for the sake of the audience versus sort of protecting themselves. But just anytime I hear that kind of language from a faculty member, it just makes me feel like they have their ear to the ground, which Cameron clearly does. Um, and the last bit I want to talk about, I know we've talked about different versions of this question sort of surrounding material requirements on different episodes uh, before, but that idea of monologue starting from the year you were born, right? It's one of those many requirements that we talk about threading the needle. We talk about what different uh, schools want in general. And it is why you will likely need a diverse range of material in your book. You do not need unique monologues for every school, but you're likely going to need more than just two monologues, even if 
every school only asks for two monoliths. You might need, because they have slightly different requirements, to have three or four um, to actually meet all the requirements. Some schools will want a classical monologue, right, which is including but not limited to Shakespeare, especially these days. Shakespeare, which used to sometimes be required, is less likely to be required. Some schools may still say it's preferred, but um, you'll have a, a classical monologue requirement for some schools. And some will want two very contemporary pieces, like Rutgers is saying, or uh, Syracuse has said that in the past. Um, and some schools will say, it's fine, just give me two monologues contrasting in style, however you want to do it, right? There aren't many schools that will require you to have an American classic, like Cameron mentioned, Our Town or All My Sons or something like that. But I, I will say, some people really shine in that material. Now, my personal taste tends to lean a little more toward Cameron's, mostly just, I think, from seeing too many bad versions of a Neil Simon monologue, where it feels like I'm watching a kid wearing his dad's ill-fitting suit. But for some, that same suit will fit like a glove and be a delightful retro throwback. So there really aren't rules as much as there are guidelines. Schools want to see what will, you will be most successful with. They just don't want you to shoot yourself in the foot with a poor artistic choice before they've gotten a chance to meet you. And it can never be about a black and white number of a year, right? Cameron's trying to give you a guideline there of, of, of the years you were born, but some plays from 2010 already can feel a little stylized and dated, whereas others from the 90s feels like they literally could have been written yesterday and fit perfectly in your voice. This is where I would say you can try to trust your developing artistic taste in terms of that question of, does this feel like me? Does this sound like me? Does, this, does it seem like I'm talking or does it seem like I'm in a style which feels not contemporary and not realistic and naturalistic to me, right? And certainly I'll say this is where it doesn't hurt to have a trusted guide who really knows this process to weigh in like MTCA. Well, there we go. I've turned some genuine advice into a plug, so it's time to wrap this episode up. This episode was produced by Megan Cordier. Please check us out at Mapping the College Audition on Instagram or head to our website at mtcollegeauditions.com to see our amazing class of 2023 and their final decisions. To my young artists mapping their journeys, if our leading presidential candidates were auditioning for colleges, could they audition with Shakespeare? Since it would have been written after they were born. Oh my God, the jokes this week. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.